how does Manila celebrate a big war hero making his grand homecoming? Well, with a victory parade, a Latin hymn, and don't forget, a ceremonial sword. The man of the hour was Narciso Claveria, the governor general who wasn't content to just sit in his office in Manila, shuffling papers and doing busy work. Instead, he saddled up and sailed down south to Mindanao with an armada to root out a settlement in Balangini Island. Balangini was an island just south of Basilan, and it was a base for slave raiders who sailed out with the easterly winds to capture villagers from the Philippine coasts. To try and put a stopper on the attacks, Claveria ordered three primitive steamships from Great Britain, and in February 1848, he led a patchwork fleet on a siege against the slavers. A little over a week later, the four fortresses of Balangini Island were breached, the villages of the seafaring people were on fire, and the corpses of dead men, women, and children lay still among the burning clumps of coconut trees. The Spanish government hailed the Battle of Balangini as a tremendous military victory. In Manila, news of the battle was translated into different Philippine languages and sent to the provinces. Churches echoed with the hymn of the Te Deum, an ancient Latin chant of acclaim. When Claveria the Conqueror returned to Manila, bells rang up and down the city. On his ship, he was gifted with the most precious sword, a military medal called the Knight Grand Cross of the Royal and Military Order of San Fernando, as well as the title Count of Manila. The Governor General's officially royalty now. Going down from his ship, Claveria then marched into Manila on a horse, passing underneath a triumphal arc with his army following behind him. One year later, Count Narciso set his eyes on a new conquest, the family names of each and every Filipino living in the islands. Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we trace the secret origin of our apellidos or surnames. This is Season 4, Episode 6, The Big Book of Family Names. As anyone who's attended the Filipino family reunion knows, our memory for relatives is as bottomless as our hunger for lumpia. It's been a defining part of our cultures for centuries. The Moros recorded their family trees in extensive documents called tarsilas. Among the Ifugao, the departed ancestors make their displeasure known in dreams. The Ita Dumagat believe that their recently dead kin roam the world as spirits. But families are different from family names. For much of our history, many of us didn't have much use for them. According to historian Yuval Noah Harari, the first individual in history whose name is known to us is, in all likelihood, a Sumerian person named Kushim. Just Kushim, no surname. A 5,000-year-old clay tablet from the city of Uruk reads, 29,086 measures barley, 37 months, Kushim. Writes Harari. The most probable reading of this sentence is, a total of 29,086 measures of barley were received over the course of 37 months. 
signed Kushim. It is telling that the first recorded name in history belongs to an accountant, rather than a prophet, a poet, or a great conqueror. Family names came much, much later in human history. The Chinese started using clan names about 2,000 years after the time of Kushim, while Europeans began adopting them at the start of the 11th century. With the exception of the Moro noble houses in the south who, as we said, recorded their family trees in Tarsilas, names were fluid and flexible in pre-colonial Philippines. In northern Luzon, for example, if you were very sick, you had to change your name temporarily to confuse the spirits who were bringing you illness. Among the Tagalogs, you assumed a new surname when you became a parent. For example, if you have a son named Malakas or Strong, your new surname would be Amani Malakas or Father of Malakas if you were the dad or Inani Malakas if you were the mom. You can see this in action in the Spanish account of the Filipino plot against the Spaniards in 1587. Among the conspirators was a man named Kalau, which is a name that means hornbill, and his dad, Amani Kalau, who also had a Christianized first name of Luis. These changing names must have been confusing to the Spanish colonizers, especially when it came to update the tax records. Was one Tagailog a different person from one Tabing Dagat, or was he the same guy who just happened to move addresses? And did one already serve out his required stint of forced labor, or was it that other one who was a chicken farmer? For their part, Spanish people with their four names must have bewildered the Filipino natives. Religion made things even messier. If you were baptized into the brand new Catholic faith the Spanish were bringing into the archipelago, you had to take a Christian name for both your first and last name. In the grab bag of names, religious terms became a popular choice. Writes editor Chitli Hauko. Names, both first and last, were casually adopted by the natives. Most popular were those of saints such as San Jose and Santa Maria, often resulting in multiplicity. This was aggravated by a church rule of giving the sacrament of baptism only to those with religious names. In general, however, there was hardly any system to speak of. Surnames were not handed down to the next generations. Siblings assumed different surnames in some cases. Hey, sorry to interrupt. This is Leo, creator of the Colonial Department. If you are listening to this episode on Spotify, you may have noticed that we now have polls and Q&As up on the new apps. Hope you can spare a quick minute to answer. And if you haven't yet, leave a rating and subscribe. This will all go a long way in helping support this podcast. And now, back to some more Philippine history. the conqueror of Balangini, this unsystematized infestation of surnames was a bureaucratic nightmare he wanted to wipe clean off the face of the earth, just like he did to the Moro villages down south. Enter the Claveria Decree, a mandate from the very top that ordered all Filipino families to adopt a lasting surname. If you didn't have one, you had to pick from the Catalogo Alfabetico de Apellidos, or in English, the Alphabetical Catalog of Surnames. 
copies of this book, signed with Claveria's ornate signature on the front, were passed on to the provincial governors, who then passed it to the parish priests, who passed it on to the town chiefs. Inside were 61,000 family names to choose from. A vast majority were based on Spanish and religious surnames, along with names inspired by nature, geography, and the arts. Many native options were also in the list, including old Maharlika names that had the title Gat in the front, which is where we get names like Gatmonton, Gachalian, Gatdula, Gatmaintan. Some were also stalwart adjectives. Makapagal, for example, means tireless. Katakutan, fearsome. Makatunaw, metal melter. Dimagiba, one who cannot be destroyed. Dimakulangan, one who will never come up short. Also in the list were some very unfortunate names like Bayag or Testicles and Puke or Vagina. According to historian Ambeth Ocampo, they were given out as surnames to people who were late to the sign-up sheet or to people who had no other choice. The Claveria decree made some exceptions. The ancient family names of Lacandula, Tupas, Mojica, and Raja Matanda would be preserved and no one else could take them. Also, if you could prove your family had kept your surname for the past four generations, it could stay, even if it was something as common as the names of saints. Everyone else had to choose from the list in the catalog or have a family name assigned to them. For the Spanish administration, enforcing the Claveria decree must have been a bureaucratic nightmare. Our families will forever carry the marks of their paper cuts in our last names. Entire pages of the alphabetically ordered catalog were ripped out and given to towns. When one of my office mates found out that one of my other office mates was from Romblon, she knew exactly what part of the province he was from just because he had a surname that started with the letter R. This is a pattern that repeats all throughout the archipelago. Residents of Owas, Albay also got letter R surnames. Families in Argao, Cebu, were assigned surnames that started with Al, like Almirante, or Villa, like Villaflor. In some towns of Iloilo, the first letter of your town corresponded with the first letter of the surname that was assigned to you. So for many of us Filipinos, our family names are actually just 170 years old, give or take. After the Claveria decree, these names were immortalized inside tax records and file cabinets. But before the Claveria decree, names changed with the places we lived, or the spirits we encountered, or the children we bore. These names are now lost in the mists of history. For some, this has created a sense of profound dislocation about who they are and where they come from. They flail in the dark for tenuous connections to an imagined past. Some Filipinos with Hispanized surnames find coats of arms in Spain that also bear their last name and cling to the belief that their ancestors were noblemen who had sailed in from beyond the Great Sea. Some Filipinos with indigenous surnames, meanwhile, proudly point out the non-Hispanic roots of their last names and think that they are Indian royalty or that they had resisted the colonizers better than their neighbors. Of course, all these assumptions about your forebears could be true, but for a majority of the Filipinos, it's just so hard to verify.
My surname is Mangubat. Growing up, this last name was often the butt of jokes because Gubat means forest. We've heard all the insults before. Jungle Man, Mr. Forest, Tarzan. However, my uncle, who was a professor of history for decades before he died a few years ago, once told us that Gubat is an old Tagalog word for war. In some Ilongo and Cebuano dialects, it still carries this meaning. So we weren't just forest people. We were, said my uncle, warriors. Later, my uncle wrote in an essay about finding a Facebook group of a Mangubat clan who hailed from Cebu. This group made the claim that this distinctive family name was adopted by the heirs of Lapu-Lapu, the slayer of Magellan. To escape Spanish retribution during the colonial era, his descendants changed their name to Mangubat, or warrior. My uncle, ever the historian, called these claims interesting but unverifiable. And besides, he wrote, as far as he knew, our family comes from Batangas and not Cebu. The name Mangubat is also in Cleveria's catalog on page 82 between Manipol and Manaligod. So is my family really descended from Lapu-Lapu or some noble clan of ancient Tagalog fighters? Or did my ancestors just pick a random name out of a list? If you had a choice to rewrite your family history, which story would you pick? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. Filipiniana Online has uploaded the entire Claveria decree and the catalog of family names on issue.com and you can read it there. Additional info for this episode came from articles by Ambeth Ocampo, published in Inquirer, and Chitli Hauko, published in the Philippine Tatler. Details on Filipino naming traditions come from articles by Mark Dizon, Francis Lambrecht, Daniel Sheens, and Volume 57 of Blair and Robertson's The Philippine Islands. Claveria's Victory Parade is described in Tingting Cohuango's book, Curse of Valor. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.